0: Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals and the people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting pro-animal laws and regulations. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. Uh, We're talking again today about the coronavirus, which makes us hardly unique. Everyone is talking about coronavirus. I'm getting emails from people I didn't even realize I had given my email address to, like car washes. Wayne, it's ridiculous. It's like, we want our car wash customers to know that you won't catch the coronavirus as you ride through your car in the car wash. Well, okay. okay good good to know. But there are a lot of serious <laughs> things, of course, relating to the coronavirus that need to be discussed. And one of our recent shows, we talked about uh, how this zoonotic disease, that is a disease that crosses the, the generally reliable membrane between animals uh, and humans when it comes to the transmission of diseases, was crossed at a wet market in Wuhan, China, Uh, uh, and we had a lot of very fascinating information be discussed about the coronavirus relative to that there. And and Wayne, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I I believe it's the case that China has now shut down at least temporarily, maybe permanently, all of these live animal markets. Is that correct?
1: Yes, it it has in terms of the official response. Whether or not that is followed on the ground is a different matter, but the estimate is 20,000 live animal markets or wet uh, markets where domesticated animals and wild animals are sold because people some small percentage of people in China have an appetite for a wide range of species
0: right right exactly and they and they prefer them not only or indulge in them not only because of of the taste but also i think we talked about a lot of uh, uh, mythical properties or superstitious properties cultural myths regarding uh, whether eating a certain animal will make a man more virile or or to greater health. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on that.
1: Yes. I think that there is some of that going on as well. And uh, of course, you know, among the people who do this, just a, a total inattention to animal suffering and inattention to the defense of biodiversity and frankly, a uh, complete ignorance about the threats to them as individuals and to society as a whole. And as we discussed in our prior podcast on this, Joe, this is remarkable. I mean, to think of a, a small little transaction at an open-air, squalid, overcrowded, uh, wet market in one city in China, unleashing this global pandemic, uh, the circumstance in the United States, which appears to be in the early stages of grappling with this pandemic, you know, it could be the most significant thing that's happened uh, to the United States since World War II. And, you know, I don't want to say I told you so, you know, on behalf of the animal welfare community, but we have been warning about these wet markets because of the threat of zoonotic diseases being spawned there and jumping the species barrier and infecting a human and then that virus then crossing the globe. And, you know, We said it after the SARS outbreak in 2002 and 2003, which also began at a wet market in, in a city in China. And here we are again. And of course, wet markets occur not just in China, but they occur in Vietnam, which has also pledged to close down those wet markets. And we have some in the United States as well. But there's been very little discussion about it. The animal welfare community is trying to inject this into the discussion. But it seems to be lost as we talk you know, uh, about containment, which is, is very understandable because now we want to arrest the spread of this, this virus. But it's a serious issue. And I think we have a duty as animal welfare advocates to talk about the origins of this so we don't replicate it. And uh, that's why I'm glad we're devoting this conversation uh, today to the effects of the coronavirus on, on animals.
0: Yeah, it it really, I think, Wayne, was a matter of time. And I think this really foreshadows this coronavirus episode, what may be to come. I was reading a fascinating article, uh, I think it was from the New York Times or maybe even Nat Geo, on how so much of our deforestation efforts in certain parts of the globe contribute to the growth of the mosquito population. And of course the mosquito is the most deadly animal on earth to mankind. It kills about 800,000 people a year through the transmission of malaria and other diseases. Uh, As we chop down trees, we create more uh, wet areas where mosquitoes breed. Uh, It's interesting to me too, that we think of viruses often in the context of producing cold like symptoms. Well, it, it turns out to be merely coincidental Uh, that the viruses that are transmitted affect us this way of course because when we sneeze cough um, and put body fluids out there as a byproduct of the virus that uh, propitiates the the contagious aspect of it and it facilitates it but there are many viruses that have uh, neurological effects um, uh, that uh, do far more sinister things to people uh, than merely give them pneumonia and all of these things be they coming through the mosquito uh, population uh, whether we are coming in contact with them by penetrating deeper into the habitats where these animals normally uh, reside and have heretofore been confined to uh, or whether it's through a wet market our constant infiltration into the world of the animal and the commingling in unhealthful ways for them results in unhealthful results for us so it's it's really fascinating and scary at the same time.
1: Well, you're, you're right. And the one of the slogans of Animal Wellness Action and our sister organization, Animal Wellness Foundation, is that helping animals helps us all. That when we're good to animals, we have good outcomes for them and for us. The converse is true. When we do terrible things to animals, there are often bad consequences for society. So as you noted, 60 plus percent of diseases that afflict people started in animals. You think of the bushmeat trade in Africa um, as, the, as the trigger for the AIDS pandemic in the world that started in the 1980s. Uh, more recently, the Ebola virus um, and, and that threat of a pandemic. It, it never became a pandemic, fortunately, but had an incredible rate of, um, of death for uh, people who contracted it. And so many other things. you know, prairie dogs were sold that spawned monkeypox. pox. Uh, you know mosquitoes and all of the, the pathogens that are, are spread by those uh, animals. Uh, this is not some academic concern. This is a very practical concern. And we disregard these fundamental biological transfers and transmissions at are peril. And to just talk about symptoms and to talk about containment, you know, really invites a recurrence of this problem. And that's why we hope that as we talk about containment and we talk about all of the uh, really important things that we need to do to stem the spread of this virus, we also talk about not letting it recur in some other form.
0: You know, it's not science fiction. This is science fact and uh, we're in for more. We're in for more of it if we don't learn. And uh, I'm, Somewhat pessimistic, I must say, in in our ability to learn a lot from this particular uh, lesson. I'm glad you mentioned uh, the foundation, um, Animal Wellness Foundation. Uh, We have uh, the president of that foundation with us on this podcast, Dr. Annie Harbalis. She is going to be talking with us in a few minutes about pets and coronavirus, some very interesting things happening there. We want our listeners to be made aware of, but First, I wanna go to Marty Irby. Marty has been doing a great deal of work uh, lobbying uh, on the uh, Horse Racing Integrity Act. Uh, Churchill Downs, in my backyard, recently announced that they were postponing the Derby until September. Uh, Marty, tell us uh, what this delay owing to the coronavirus means to horse racing, if anything, in the big picture. And what do we need to know regarding the progress of the Horse Racing Integrity Act?
2: Yes, thank you, Joe. I know since the derby is in your backyard, I'm sure there will be some economic changes in the area. And they did postpone the derby until September 5th. But what's interesting is that, as usual, the horse racing industry lags behind everyone else. Every other major sport in the country had been canceled. And then it was about a week or maybe more before the derby was even postponed. And still today as we sit here there are tracks across the country that are running horses they may not have fans in the stands but honestly fans weren't there that much to begin with so they're putting jockeys trainers grooms valets so many people at risk right now horses are running this week uh, at Sam Houston in Texas at Oaklawn Park in Arkansas Tampa Bay Downs and on Saturday the Churchill Downs owned fairgrounds in new orleans louisiana will be running and hosting the louisiana derby so it seems to me that this was uh very much a self-serving decision by churchill downs for the rest of the world to be able to see that the derby was postponed and they didn't really do anything else all these other tracks are operating they're running horses putting people at risk putting the horses lives at risk because they're continuing to drug horses as these races go on and So we really want to see the Horse Racing Integrity Act passed, and we've been calling on Congress to do so, and we think that these races and racetracks should not run these horses until the legislation has been signed into law where this can be taken care of, this can be cleaned up. There's so many health and safety factors related to this. But just know that despite all of the other shutdowns in the world, the one thing that's still running and operating is American horse racing. And even in Tennessee, where the big-lick sore horses are shown, Those people have even canceled the horse shows. And that says a lot if they've done it and horse racing hasn't. So uh, I'm really disappointed in the horse racing industry and really disappointed in Churchill Downs. But I'm not surprised one bit considering 29 uh, horse racing individuals were indicted last week as well. Um, We hope that things change and we're going to continue pushing on and working to effectuate that change across the country in American
1: horse racing.
0: Uh, There was some good news. Um, If you're from Louisville or Kentucky or follow Thoroughbred Racing at all, you know the name Bob Baffert. Uh, He recently came out in support of the Horse Racing Integrity Act.
2: He did. We were really thrilled uh, to have Bob Baffert on board last week. As I said, 29 individuals were indicted, two of the other top trainers in the racing industry, and Baffert is well-known across the country, probably the most well-known figure in the sport, silver-haired guy, trained the two Triple Crown winners that have won in the past 37 years, and I know many of our colleagues and friends in the Coalition for Horse Racing Integrity had been working on him for quite some time, so that was a big game for us. It really opened the door for pretty much any other trainer out there to support the bill and not face much backlash within the industry since he's the creme de la creme, we really are thrilled to see that. I do think we're going to see more trainers and other jockeys come on board rel- relatively quickly, and we're going to get some more momentum going on that bill as soon as the coronavirus lets us um, get our head above water.
0: Thank you for that update, Marty. I want to transition now over to uh, Dr. Annie a uh, Doctor of Veterinary Medicine. She's the President of Animal Wellness Foundation and the Secretary for Animal Wellness Action the producer of this podcast. She resides in LA and owns and operates the Animal Wellness Center uh, there. Annie, we're sure uh, glad you are with us. Um, Thanks so much for having me. One of the most heartbreaking stories I've read relating to the outbreak of um, uh, this coronavirus in China, Uh, the thousands upon thousands of pets who have been left to um, starve to death, to dehydrate, have been abandoned uh, in that area. Uh, what do you know about that? And do you see a risk of pets being abandoned if the coronavirus gets China-like out of hand over here?
3: It's, it's definitely a concern. It's something that we have to be worried about. Um, when it comes to a time when people have to make decisions about what's best for their family, sometimes they forget that their pets are also members of the family. Um, and we've already been seeing here in Los Angeles people coming in who aren't able to care for their pets anymore. Um, we did have somebody relinquish a pet because they lost their job and they just couldn't handle it anymore. Um, but the, the biggest fear, I think, is at least in what I'm sensing here in the U.S., is that people are going to have trouble taking care of their pets um, because of issues with the economy. Um, more than problems with the virus. Um, what I heard from people who, who were, you know, living through the, the COVID outbreak in China was that people were afraid of their pets. Um, they were very fearful that they could get the disease from their animals or that their animal was going to go out and um, Infect more their family members or their loved ones. Um, and so they, in in some cases, were actually euthanizing them um, just because they were too afraid that they were getting it. And it's because I think a lot of that is, some of it may be cultural, um, but it's also that it was very new then. And, you know, one of the things that people knew was that it had come from these meat markets, so they were afraid that it was zoonotic enough that people could get it from their pets. But we, we have a lot more information now, Um, a lot more people have been infected. There have been a lot more pets around. And we know now that we can't get it from the pets, or at least everything we've shown so far um, is pointing to the fact that people can't get it from their pets.
0: I want to make that that clear, Andy, because that's an important point, because my my little chihuahua from hell is right by my right foot, and she is nervous (laughs) that uh, uh, I might suspect her of being able to bring in the coronavirus to the home, so can I tell Apple that she is safe with me and that she is not going to make me sick or she's not going to be made sick?
3: Yes, I think you can tell Apple she's gonna be okay. You hear
0: Um, that, Apple? You're okay. You're okay, honey.
3: So here's something that I I just learned uh, that the AVMA released. IDEX is one of our big laboratory service um, partners. And March 13th, they announced that they had actually developed a test to evaluate COVID-19 in dogs and cats, and they evaluated thousands of dog and cat specimens from potentially exposed animals, and they got no positive results. So we did have that one positive result that's been in the news a lot um, in Hong Kong. Uh, It was a dog that tested weak positive, and it continued to test weak positive, but there's absolutely no indication that that dog can spread it to other dogs or other people and that was one case out of hundreds of thousands of people who have been exposed and have pets. Talk so, about
0: what's a, a weak positive. Can you do you know enough about that to explain it to our listeners? What that means a weak positive. Well, just that
3: they're I mean, w- when you when you do the test. I'm not 100 percent sure what kind of tests that they're running, um, but a lot of times you're looking for actual particles. Um, sometimes you're looking for virus particles. Sometimes you're looking at the immune system's response to the virus. So when you have a weak positive, it usually means that there's a very, very small amount present. Not a, you're not necessarily enough to be worried about. In um, other diseases that I do know about, when we get a weak positive, we usually just you know, retest it and be a little cautious. But when you have a strong positive, you're, you're pretty much convinced that it's, it's an accurate test result. Sometimes with weak positives, they can be false positives. hmm
0: Gotcha. Right. So, and the reason the dogs and cats don't seem to get this is that they have, uh, am I correct, natural immunities to this, that there is some characteristic about their cell DNA that does not enable the virus to penetrate those cells and take up residence there, whereas human cells do not have that defense. Is that an accurate scientific representation of, of the machinery going on here? That's, that's perfect.
3: That's, that's, exactly, that's exactly the thought process. Um, because when you, have, you can have many zoonotic diseases um, that could be passed from one species to another, but it doesn't mean that it can pass to all species. So even though this may have come from an animal that was sold at a meat market, that doesn't mean that all animals can get it. It just means that we had that one transmission from a mutation. And I will say this. We are saying that it is a good idea if people test positive for COVID-19 or if they're concerned that they have the disease, it is better not to, you know, kiss and cuddle on your dog just to be safe, you know? Mm -hmm. And, And I think a lot of that has to do with the potential risk of the dog being a fomite, which means if virus particles get on your dog and then someone else immediately, you know, kisses on the dog or something. Maybe there's some particles that are, that are on the fur.
0: I got you. Um, well, it's just so but, a dog in that case would be just like a banister or a, a piece of furniture. Exactly. Yeah. The residue it, could be on there. So
3: yeah, uh, could be, it could be a, a hairbrush or a seat cushion, like anything. Right. Um, you know, any, anything can do that. So that doesn't, that's not, you know, particular to dogs or cats, but we are recommending, as as veterinarians, that if you have the disease, have someone else care for your pet for a while. Okay, um, you know, while while you're in quarantine. Yeah, yeah, have someone else walk your dog, feed your dog.
0: That's interesting because that gets almost into, you know, another part of. Of the reason why animals may be imperiled by the coronavirus, and that is animals being forfeited by owners because they can't care for them. So why would that be important? For example, if like let's let's take my dog Apple, right? If I have coronavirus and if Apple never goes out, to, you know she uses the potty pads indoors. Would it still be advisable that I let someone else feed her or take care of her, even if she's not around other people? Or is it only dogs who might be on a walk or might be with other dogs and therefore could get this back in the so-called seat cushion way. Let's call it that to other folks, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, uh,
3: yeah. Yes. I think, I think so. And, and I also think it's just because with viruses and especially this new virus, we don't know everything about it. So we're just trying to be safe. You know, they, that's why they're making that recommendation at the AVMA. It's just, just to be safe, but <clears throat> I, I have a tiny little Yorkie. She would be very happy to just hang out with me and not go outside or be around anyone else. If I got sick, I probably would keep her with me. Yeah, right. <laughs> because, right. because, you know, the, the benefits of having her with me both for her and myself far outweigh the risk. Um, but as you know, a professional and the professional organization they're recommending if you're sick, you know, have someone not care for your pet for you.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, because that may worry you also uh, with your animal advocacy that you will suddenly see people overreacting to that suggestion and saying, mm-hmm. I may have coronavirus here. Take my pet. Okay.
3: No, we don't want that because, you know, the the idea is that it's temporary. Uh, a lot of times people are only quarantined for, for two to four weeks. It should not make people relinquish their pets. It's It's not worth it. And uh, and they're also probably concerned that, you know, sometimes people have to get hospitalized and and then what's going to happen to the pets? Like, uh, you know, I know in China they were having trouble where people were getting so sick, they were getting hospitalized. And nobody knew that they had a dog or a cat at home. And the dog and cat at home, you know, they were going a week, two weeks without any food or anything. So yeah, it's, I think it's that's good the, for...
0: Yeah, I think that was the genesis of, of the story I was reading about. Uh, all of the, the thousands yeah. of pets starving to death or dehydrating, you know, in China is that so many people had, had either left or were, as to your point, hospitalized. And
3: So there's several reasons why it's a good idea to, you know, let someone know you have a pet you know, see if somebody else can, can help take care of them while you're ill and, and while you're recovering.
0: All right. But, good. Well, I want to, i want to go to one other question and then I'll turn it over to Wayne okay. and Marty because people are getting uh, laid off, right? Bartenders, uh, wait staff, mm-hmm. lots of folks, you know, in the tip-based economy are going to be hurting financially. What resources are available for these people to help? Take care of their pets while they try and keep food on on the table for themselves
3: there are a lot of resources available and the best place for people to find those resources is to contact their veterinarian um, veterinarians are highly compassionate people in general and they are very concerned about making sure that people keep their pets and people are able to pay for things so there there are a lot of funds out there to help people with veterinary care Um, There are food banks out there. They're just very localized. So the best thing to do is to contact your veterinarian. With Animal Wellness Foundation, for the past 10 years here in Los Angeles, we've been helping people um, who are low-income, who need help with their veterinary expenses. Um, Before that, I did work at the ASPCA in New York City. And one thing that I've found repeatedly is that people that... Don't have the financial resources that they need to take care of their pet. Sometimes wait too long to seek care. And that's the most important message that I have today for people. You don't want to wait. If your dog is sick, call the vet. If your dog is having diarrhea, call. Don't wait until it gets to a point where they're so dehydrated or, you know, vomiting so much or have a foreign body that's been in their intestines too long, like, A lot of diseases, if you treat it early, it can be kind of (laughs) cheap, for lack of a better way to say it. You know, if you come in right when your dog starts having diarrhea, we can treat it with pills and be done, and it's easy. But if you wait until they're extremely dehydrated, you know, and sometimes people wait until they're on the verge of death, and you bring them in, that's a bill that's going to be a couple thousand dollars. If a cat goes two days sometimes, but more likely like two or three days without eating, their liver starts shutting down and make it extremely sick. It's better to take care of it early. Like seek help fast, quickly. Don't wait.
0: So if you're listening because to this it'll, it'll podcast, get worse. right. And, and you've lost your income because of coronavirus, your message is uh, call your veterinarian, explain the situation. Don't, don't be ashamed. Right. Don't be afraid to mm-hmm. call the veterinarian and say, Hey, you know, this virus has cost me my income, but my cat is showing or my dog is showing these symptoms. What, what can be done, you know, to help me out here? Um, are most vets working yeah. right now? Um, is there any sort yeah. of, uh, what, do you, what do you know about that across the country?
3: Uh, veterinarians, and, and I actually uh, did some research on this, on what happened in China, which, what happened in Italy. Even when they have lockdowns, veterinarians are considered essential employees. Good to so know. veterinarians are going to stay open. Um, A lot of them are going back to just emergency care. Um, We're not doing a lot of elective procedures, um, but are going to stay open and they're going to be there for you. What we're doing at our clinic, at our hospital, and what a lot of hospitals pretty much around the country are doing is I'm calling it a drive through service. Instead of people getting out of the car, they're just driving up to our hospital, calling when they're there. We're getting a history, getting all the information on the phone, and then somebody comes out, gets the pet, brings the pet inside, and the owner never leaves their car. It's great because without that person-to-person contact, we're really minimizing the chance of, you know, COVID infection. But we're also getting all the, the pets taken care of. And I think that that's another thing that's important because there are going to be some people out there aren't going to take their pets to the vet because they're too concerned about contracting something at the vet office. So it's good to know that veterinarians are taking precautions. And also veterinarians, more than most other businesses, know how to deal with contagious disease. Um, A lot better than your average doctor, to be honest, your average human doctor. So you have to trust your veterinarian.
1: Yeah, this is Wayne, uh, Dr. Annie and Joe, and uh, that's all great stuff, uh, Dr. Annie. Thank Thank you for sharing that. I think you know you're you're correct that vets are so caring and it's an amazing network. You know, eighty thousand veterinarians in the United States, uh, but I, I will tell you that it's a lot of burden on them. And Annie, Dr. Annie, will be the first to tell you that m- most of them are small business owners, and they are uh, very stressed. It's one of the most um, intense jobs you can you can have. I mean, the suicide rates for veterinarians are among the highest of any occupation in the country, and they're burdened. And for them to deal with this chronic problem of of people not having enough resources or feeling they don't have enough resources to feed their animals, to give them medical services, uh, other things such as vaccination, spay and neuter, that's precisely why Dr. Annie started the Animal Wellness Foundation more than a decade ago. Because there are... Even in the best of circumstances, there are tens of millions of people who are at or below the poverty line. And I remember going down to Katrina, uh, after the uh, to Louisiana, after the Katrina uh, hurricane hit. Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast in 2005. And there were so many people from lower income areas who were desperate to help their animals. Uh, but most of their animals at that time, you know, hadn't been to a veterinarian before. Not because those folks didn't want to give them medical care, but because they didn't have access or they didn't have means. Uh, you know, there might have been lower spay and neuter rates because there might not have been enough programs to support that. But those folks wanted their animals sterilized as well, and this is why I think putting it uh, on the vets alone would be impossible. And I'm sure Dr. Annie would agree. You know, going to your local humane organizations, animal care organizations, and asking for assistance. And this is, again, the the raison d'etre for the Animal Wellness Foundation. And the Animal Wellness Foundation is going to be expanding its programs during this time to try to attend to people's needs for their animals, whether it's food or medical services. And this, to me, is one of the biggest companion animal issues in the United States. You know, puppy mills are a big problem. Dog fighting is a big problem. But when you think about 40 million people at or below the poverty line in a normal circumstance without a contagion, that is a tr- if two-thirds of those households have, have pets, that means that you're, you're talking 25 or 30 million animals there where people often don't have the means to provide all the care that they would otherwise want. And that's where humane organizations pick up the slack because government typically is not there to handle this circumstance and this is where philanthropy and and volunteers and animal organizations come in and that's what the animal wellness foundation is trying to do but my god it's a big country we've got 330 million people and this is a lot of animals in need so this has got to be a big focus for the animal welfare movement broadly not just the animal wellness foundation but for so many other organizations to help with this problem
0: so so wayne if we're putting together checklist from this interview we, we would have dr. Annie's point uh, don't hesitate to call your your vet if owing to for example your circumstances related to the virus you know or maybe in any other circumstance you, know, you can't afford to take care of your pet and let the uh, veterinarian talk to you about options there but then if it comes to just needing support generally uh, for food to take care of the animal otherwise you would add, make sure that you're in touch with the local humane uh, society or other philanthropic organization?
1: I would. I mean, a lot of them have pet pantries. They have food that people donate and, and they can be a source for that. And they may have relationships with veterinarians who may be able to provide some medical services. I mean, I think the animal wellness foundation is you know, at the top of the list in terms of having this as a fundamental purpose of the charitable organization A lot of other humane organizations may be focused on, you know, fostering, or they may be focused on spay and neuter, or they may be focused on adoption. Um, But Animal Wellness Foundation, its primary mission in terms of its companion animal advocacy, is to provide more in the way of medical services to animals who otherwise can't get it because their, you know, their custodians, their caretakers, don't have access. they don't have the resources to do it.
0: Dr. Ernie, tell us a little bit more about Animal Wellness Foundation. Uh, How broad is its scope? Um, What's its mission? You're the president of it, Give us the inside scoop on what that organization is.
3: So uh, I founded Animal Wellness Foundation um, over a decade ago, mostly because I could see how terrible it is for animals, their owners, and the veterinarians who serve them when people just don't have the means to to afford the veterinary care that they need. Um, And there has to be something that the veterinary community can do about this. And so that's why I started Animal Wellness Foundation with the idea that our practice of veterinary medicine, all the clients, we basically have become a community. And a lot of the clients who can afford to donate money, they will donate money to us to help the people who don't have the funding. Um, So we've gotten to a point where we've really been working like crazy here in Los Angeles. My vision is to have this be a model for what veterinary practices can do all over the country. Um, so our, our mission is to help people who can't afford on a, on a national scale veterinary care for their animals by basically revolutionizing the veterinary industry.
1: And I think Joe, it's Wayne again. I just want to amplify a couple of Dr. Annie's points there. That you know vets care, but they're running a business, and it's difficult to to run that business and to get net net revenues for the center that allow you know the vet and and the and the multiple vets maybe if it's a larger clinic and the techs and others to get an income. And if you're you know dealing with giving free services left and right. I mean, you can't run a business. I mean, you have to have paying customers if, if you're if you're any kind of business. So the foundation is kind of an adjunct to the vet hospital that can take care of some of those costs. So the vet hospital actually gets some revenues from the 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 medical procedures and and medical you know work that's done, so it can continue to operate and continue to help animals who are uh, owned by paying clients or non-paying clients. And that's the beauty, I think, of this this kind of private business, private charity relationship. And I think that's what we want to expand at the Animal Wellness Foundation. I mean, Annie said it's Los Angeles, the big city. Yeah, it's the second biggest city in the United States. It's huge. It's got <laughs> millions of people. Um, you know, you're talking about 3,000 counties in the United States, 330 million. We need to dramatically expand this. This is like you know, before there were local SPCA's and humane societies in counties, you know, in the late 1800s, I mean, there were a few that were doing it, the MSPCA and the ASPCA and a few others, but most communities and most counties had no humane organization. That's what it's like at this point for us when it comes to vet hospitals having a related foundation that can help offset these medical costs, which is just like human medicine. The costs are increasing there's no safety net now for for families i mean pet health insurance is only one or two percent of people uh, with pets have pet health insurance this is a huge issue in our field and we need a much bigger philanthropic commitment to this kind of work and hitching it to veterinary hospitals makes sense because they've got the technical expertise they've got the equipment they've got the commitment they just don't have the resources to do it.
3: One, one thing that I wanted to say is I, I think that this is the beginning, what we're seeing here with this COVID-19. I think that we're in, we're in it for the long haul. And I also have had a couple clients who say they've lost their jobs um, because of the disease and they're not going to be able to, to pay for the vet care that they need. Um, but it's just the beginning. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And so now is the time for us to expand what we're doing here, um, because the entire United States of America is going to be in trouble, um, in terms of the economy and what people are being, going to be able to do for their pets. And so, you know, this is, this is the time when we have to have a call to action to, to really help out and, and step up and, and be the, be the leaders of this revolution in the veterinary industry,
2: Joe. Yeah, I would. I wanted to add too. Thanks, Annie, so much for such a great show today. Um, but I, I also wanted to add that I, I didn't include this earlier. One other uh, very huge disappointment in the city of New York and in the horse industry is that even though they've shut down most uh, of the transportation in Manhattan, horse-drawn carriages are still running and operating around Central Park and around the city. Mm-hmm and we're going to be working on that a little further. But that's a little disappointing to see that the mayor and the city council there hasn't done anything about that in the times that we're in. So I just wanted to add that in. And thanks again, Annie, for being here today with us.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Animal Wellness Podcast. I've been your host, Joseph Grove. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org to find out about all of our legislative efforts, subscribe to our newsletters, and link up with our social media channels. Want to subscribe to this podcast? Go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, And we'll be back real soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.